Quiz for the morning. What does Hosanna mean? Okay, we just sang it. No? So some of you answered, now you say, well, we're never going to answer again. It really means save. Lord, save us. Save us. And if it's addressed to Jesus, it's Savior. It's a title, but, the, but the, the, the word means save us. Now listen to the words of that song. Hosanna, save us. Come have your way among us. We welcome you here, Lord Jesus. What we're going to be talking about this morning is that all those words must go together. Save us. Lord, have your way among us. We welcome you here, Lord Jesus. Because it's all about not just what he did or has done. It's about who he is and what he wants to continue to do in our lives. That's the story of Easter. This week is kind of what it's all about, right? I mean, this is it, the Easter story. If this isn't true, we're wasting our time. By the way, for those of you who are praying for your pastor, I thank you. It's still snowing in the mountains. The Lord is blessing. We're not quite yield, ready to yield to those of you with sticks and bags and walking around green places. This week's about the heart of the gospel. It's about who Jesus is and why he came. This celebration, if we can call it that, and and I, I want to challenge that notion of just a celebration a bit. This celebration is about the historical Jesus. By that I mean the Jesus who was <coughs> and, in this, and is the same from the beginning of human history. This is not just a story about Jesus who came to earth and, and rode into Jerusalem and died this week. That's an event but it's a very minuscule part of his history, his life, our lives. And so I want to encourage us to think about the historical Jesus and who he really is from eternity past. Our human history is relatively short in the span of eternity, even for those who think we've been here, you know, billions of years. When you think of eternity, the span of human history is short. And our span of history here is short. One of the things that you're, uh, you become aware of when you travel overseas is how small American history is in the scope of human history, right? I mean, we've only been here a couple hundred years. And there are buildings older than our country in other cultures. And so all of what we celebrate... And I mean that. I love celebrating. I love worshiping God. I love loud worship music, and I love all that. But sometimes we can celebrate the wrong things, right? Sometimes our celebration can be shallow or fickle. And so what we're challenging this morning is, who is this really that we're celebrating and worshiping? What I want to suggest is that Jesus rode into Jerusalem to become our Savior. But he rode into Jerusalem as the sovereign Lord and King. And he could only become the Savior if he was the sovereign 
Lord and King. Does that make sense? This event is recorded in all four Gospels, and I would encourage you this week, read it in each of the Gospels. In fact, uh, you might take one night and read the whole Passion Week in one Gospel, and then take some time and read it in another one, or get a harmony of the Gospels and read what is going on in the life of Christ in this last week. Over half of some of the Gospels are about this last week because of the significant significance of it. I thought this morning we would read the account from John since we have been studying through 1 John. So let's see what John has to say about this event today. And again, this is kind of a three-part series, and I've titled it The Sovereign Lord Jesus the Savior. They're all tied together. And it has challenged my thinking just a little bit. Uh, some of us here are in a class called Jesus, King and Savior on Thursday nights. It started a week ago. And it's challenging our thinking about who is Jesus because I think we love to think of him as Savior. That, that's pretty palatable. The other part of the equation may not be quite so much. So if you can and if you will, I'm going to read from John chapter 12 starting at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Father, I pray that you would pry our eyes open maybe just a little wider and our heads and our hearts to consider that maybe there's more to this story than we have imagined or maybe more than we have, that we have forgotten. Would we wrestle with the implications of what this story tells us about who you are and what it means for us in 21st century America. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you grab a seat? Obviously, this story is where we get the name Palm Sunday. And if you can see the front of the stage up here, there are branches and clothes laying there. The other gospels fill in the story and say that people were laying down their cloaks as well as bringing out palm branches and waving them and laying them down. So what's the hubbub about, right? What's going on in Jerusalem at this point when this event occurs? The Passover, Jerusalem is swollen in size because people from all over have come to celebrate the Passover and they think Jesus is just one of them coming to join him. Jesus is the miracle worker. He's the spiritual superstar. 
He's on TBN and everything else they had back then. And, and the culmination of all of the mystery and celebration of Jesus is this parade, and it comes on the heels of him raising Lazarus. And those who had seen that last ultimate act of Jesus had spread the news far and wide. You know, they emailed their family. They posted it. What they did is they ran down a hill. It's only about two miles from Bethany down to Jerusalem, and it's down the hill and through the Mount of Olives, which now is a cemetery. but The road goes down through there. And as he's coming, people are yelling and worshiping this man, Jesus. He's the one that raised Lazarus. We saw Lazarus. He was dead. He was in the grave three days. By this time, he stinketh. This is Jesus, the one who did all these things, and all these things are true about him. He raised Lazarus, for goodness sake. So people are yelling, yelling and worshiping this man, Jesus, and they're saying some pretty important stuff. They're, they're saying accurate stuff. Hosanna, 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 save us, save us, save us. They even exclaim, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. There's a lot being said here that's right. Jesus is going to save, and he is the king of Israel. So what happens between this event and the one later in the week when those same people are saying, crucify a bum? By the way, we'll talk about this Friday. But the prayer to crucify him is the same as the exclamation, exclamation, save us. They're part of the same story, aren't they? And as I would think about this, it seems to me that they indeed wanted a Savior. I mean, they wanted what Jesus had to offer. The question is, what did they want him to save him? What did they want him to save them from? Maybe they wanted a king to free them from what they wanted to be freed from and a Savior to save them from what they wanted to be saved from, but they really didn't want a Savior or a king who was sovereign. A sovereign Savior saves on his terms, and a sovereign king saves for allegiance to a new kingdom. But it's an allegiance to the king nonetheless. Jesus never, ever disguised his sovereignty. He declared it. He demonstrated every miracle was a living attestation to it. He's the king. In this particular case and this particular event, he demonstrated complete, utter control over this entire scenario. So for those who say, man, Jesus was a hapless victim who was murdered, good luck with that. In the previous chapter, in John chapter 10, Jesus said this, verse 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. One of the issues with Jesus is not his power, not his willingness to save, it's this word authority. Any of you struggle with that word? Giles, do Americans love authority and kings and stuff like that? Who's in charge? 
the all-powerful, mighty, sovereign Lord. In fact, one of the very reasons that Jesus didn't go immediately to Lazarus when he got sick was to let him die. And he told his disciples, his disciples said, you know, remember they heard Jesus, uh, Lazarus was sick, Jesus, we got to go. No, we're not going to go. And then they heard that, then Jesus said, we are going to go after three days. The very sign points to what's going to happen to Jesus. And they said, well, okay. <clears throat> and Jesus said, now he's dead. And they said, so why are we going? And they said, so you might believe. Believe what? That Jesus is who he says he is. And he's not just the Savior. He's the Lord. He's in charge of everything. And so that very act precipitated this whole thing that's going on in Jerusalem. All the people yelling and shouting and the, and the religious leaders getting more and more ticked. we got to kill him. And it's all being orchestrated by whom? The sovereign king. The consistent question that was asked of Jesus by the religious leaders was not, by what power do you do these things, although they asked that question. The one that ticked them off was, was by what authority do you do these things? Because Jesus operated on his authority, his father's authority, not on theirs. The religious leaders didn't deny the miracles. They challenged his authority. And we're going to get to this in the end, but I think that's what we do. What right do you, Jesus, have to tell me how to live my life? And the answer is, if you're mine, it's no longer your life. In John 11, verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, and, and they, this is after the raising of Lazarus, and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs, any debate over the miracles. You can't deny them, right? In fact, this one with Lazarus is really hard to dismiss. Why? He was a dead guy who's standing there talking to you, Right? What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You're clueless. You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into the one, the children of God, who were scattered abroad. So from that day, they made plans to do what? To put him to death, to kill him. So here's what's happened. Jesus is doing all these miracles. People are believing in him. We can't deny the miracles, so we got to kill him. In fact, 
In John chapter 12, we find that they also were going to kill Lazarus because he's a living testimony to the reality of the power of Jesus. We got to get rid of Jesus, but we got to get rid of Lazarus as well. God's plan and Jesus' purposes were all right on course. He's headed to the cross. And these people think they're going to take control. But he's in control. As Jesus was entering the city, he told his disciples, go get a donkey. Now, this is a funky story. It's important enough that all four gospel writers include it. Why a donkey? What difference did it make? It seems like an interesting sidebar, but nothing much else until John tells us why it's so important. This was a specific prophecy made by Zechariah only 500 years earlier. (laughs) How old is the U.S.? This is over twice as old as our country. Zechariah makes a prophecy, and he says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Even as the disciples go get the donkey, what does Jesus say? What are we going to tell the person whose donkey it is? Tell them the Lord has need of it. Now, let me ask you a question. If you're parked out in the parking lot and I ask for your keys and you say, what are you doing? And I said, the Lord has need of your car. And you might say, okay, but what would you say if it was a complete stranger? Yeah, I have need of it too. This whole thing is orchestrated. Jesus is the sovereign king and Lord. And as we look at this situation, put yourself in here. What human understood what was going on? The donkey was smarter than the people. The donkey understood that the sovereign Lord needed him. The kids in one of the other gospels were shouting, Hosanna, and the religious leader said, tell them to shut up. And Jesus said, don't you remember it's predicted that out of the mouth of children? And then another time they said, Jesus, tell your disciples to shut up. And he said, listen, the rocks will cry out. The kids, the donkey, the rocks were smarter than the people because they understood who they were dealing with. I think our problem is We think of Jesus in sandals, dying, helpless, maybe hapless, but we don't think of the king of the universe who left heaven to come to die on our behalf. The people were pumped that a savior had arrived. Save us, save us, save us. Now, I don't know what they were saying, Maybe they were saying, save us from a bad marriage. Save us from my financial crisis. Save us from the Romans. Save me from my tension. Save me from my depression. Save me from whatever. But were they saying, 
Lord, save me to serve you. Lord, save me. I give up my life to be part of your life. The people at this point were pumped that the Savior had arrived, but as the week wore on, it became apparent that Jesus wasn't doing what they wanted him to do. He spent the week teaching really hard things. Some of the hardest teaching of Jesus are in this week. He escalated the tension between himself and the religious leaders. The religious system wasn't going where he was going. There were no more mighty miracles. Life didn't get better for anybody involved. And then suddenly at the end of the week, Jesus is even arrested and everything tumbles out of control. This Jesus who promised so much couldn't even fend for himself. And during this week, he delivered so little. The plans, the hopes, the dreams of everyone for Jesus came apart. So what happens when the God we want to worship turns out to be other than the God who is? What do we do with a sovereign Lord who we don't want or trust to be sovereign on our terms, which is really... Uh, Misnomer. He can't be sovereign and be sovereign on my terms. We can try and ignore him, but frankly, that doesn't work very well. Ask the Pharisees. We can try and explain him away. Again, it doesn't work very well. We can try and make him who and what he isn't, a good teacher, a good example, a savior after our own making, or ultimately, you can nail him to a cross. If he isn't what we want him to be, we have to try and get rid of him. To some extent, I can understand the angst of the religious leaders. They had a lot at stake, or at least it seemed they did, right? They were going to lose their position. They were going to lose control. They were going to lose everything. Jesus, the one that they said they were waiting for, the Savior, the Messiah, was tearing their world apart. Because he wasn't going to save on their terms. What do you do to that kind of savior who's a threat to everything you've accomplished, everything you've gained, our independent ways of life? What do you do with a God who won't bless our thing? He asks us to submit to his thing. You get rid of it. Somehow. Or at least we try. But what about the people who saw what he did and heard what he said? How could they reverse course so quickly? Uh, maybe it's that Jesus didn't act quickly enough in the specific areas they needed help. God, I need help and I need it right now and in this way. I need patience and I need it now. Maybe Jesus didn't undo all the messiness of the life that they had hoped he would. Or at least like he would. What do you do with a Savior who fails you and what you want him to be? Well, ultimately, you begin to despise him and eventually you reject him. I think that's what happened to the crowd during the week. You didn't do it my way. So I will not submit to you. You see, 
our desires become expectation and expectations become demands. And if Jesus doesn't meet our demands, maybe he's not really the one we want to worship or follow. Even the disciples somehow were sorely disappointed that Jesus didn't work on their terms, right? They loved him. They followed him. But suddenly his plans and purposes were entirely different, even opposed to theirs. Remember the discussion the disciples had had about who would be the greatest in the kingdom at the Last Supper. In James and John, we don't know if they put their mother up to it or mothers was just, their mother was just being a mother. And she went to Jesus and said, will you put my sons at your right and left hand? They've deserved it. They've given up everything for you, Jesus. And Jesus said, that's not my call. What he could have said is, well, what I'm really going to give your sons is a death sentence. They're going to follow me to my cross. And then they're going to go to their dad. Jesus' closest followers who thought that he worked on their terms and they were starting this great religious movement, but he turned out to be leading them down the path of death. They watched him arrested. They watched him die. And everything changed. What do you do with a Savior who doesn't come through when we need him most? What do you do with a savior like that? You abandon him. You walk away from him. As we approach this passion week, could it be that it's time to ask ourselves who we think Jesus is and what he's up to? Is Jesus simply a good luck charm? Is he just a savior who paid the price for our sins? Are we frustrated with Jesus because he really isn't doing for us what we thought he would or think he should, and so we're disappointed in Jesus? Or are we looking to Jesus, who's both the author and the finisher of our faith? Are we looking to the sovereign Lord who left his place in heaven to become our Savior by dying in our place, but not just to save us, to remake us, to give us life? That's next week's message. That we become citizens of his kingdom, subjects to the king, part of his eternal plan and purpose. He's called us to more than our plans and demands. I don't know what you define success as, but it's not as important as what Jesus defines it as. You know what? Cars and Missy will probably never have a big bank account unless he crashes and Missy gets the life insurance. <laughs> Sorry. I, don't, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> but you know what they will have? Eternity in heaven with great reward. Some of us will be spending eternity in heaven without much while we had it here and they'll be in heaven with much because they've given their lives to the sake of the kingdom. I think sometimes our celebration of Jesus is shallow because our understanding of who Jesus is 
shell. Responding to Jesus is not just a response to what he's done, but it's a submission to who he is. If he didn't ride in as the sovereign Lord and King, he didn't go out as the Savior. They're tied together. Let me close by reading one more paragraph in John 12. If you're still in John 12, I'm going to start reading at verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some geeks, I mean Greeks. That's hopeful for you computer types. And these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. Evidently, that's where they were from. And they asked him, sir, we, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, who's he talking to and who's he talking about? Himself, his disciples, and the Greeks. We want to see Jesus. Well, if you really want to see Jesus, Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you a belly full of the real deal. This is it. Whoever loves his life, he goes on to say, loses it. Does Jesus really mean that? I often ask Neil, who's a Bible translator, what do you think that means? He says, I think it means what it says. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, they will, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now notice it doesn't say love him. It says will honor him. Is it possible that Jesus is much more than we have thought him to be or perhaps than we want him to be? Is it possible that we're missing much of what Jesus really, really has to offer us because we only what, what, want what we want from him? Is it possible but, that we think he died for us so that we can live and he blesses our lives? Is it what God calls us to much more than simply getting saved? Is it possible that we want to separate what Jesus did from who he actually is? Is it possible that we want to worship a savior but not a king? Is it possible that a dumb donkey, and I know there are all kinds of lines there, my wife's in this service, is it possible that a donkey, a bunch of kids, and dumb rocks have something to teach us about the nature of Jesus, the sovereign king and Lord. It's great to celebrate Jesus. The question is, what are we celebrating? Who is this Jesus riding on a donkey? Is he willing, since he gave his life for us, his life for us, for us, to submit our lives.
Father, this story is deeper and layered more than I think we get. Forgive us. Forgive us. Because in some sense, we try and reject your son because he isn't what we want him to be. We're very much like these crowds. We're very much like the religious leaders who want to know what right you have to tell us what to do, who want to know why we should bend our knee to any sovereign who maybe want a savior but are really concerned about a Lord. Father, as we work this week through, may we understand that very much like those in the crowds, even your disciples and the religious leaders, we either have to deal with you in submission or we have to try and redefine you or do away with you. Would you challenge us this week, I pray? as to who this Jesus really, really was, riding on a simple donkey, being worshipped, but not adequately. In Jesus' name we pray.